Welcome to the Boonville Worship Center Sermon Podcast. So tonight we are finishing up our class on understanding the beauty and mystery of the Trinity. If you have missed any of the classes, all of the classes have notes that are available. The videos are available on YouTube and Facebook, and there's also a podcast with all of the teachings. So I'm going to open up and pray again. Lord, we welcome you, God, to come and breathe upon our hearts. Lord, we pray that as we continue to learn about who you are, God, that your the reality of who you are, God, touches our emotions and our hearts. Lord, we thank you for the unfolding revelation in your word. God, we pray that you would continue, God, to awaken our desire to know you. All right, so we are on week five. Um, tonight, we are talking about the Trinity and relationship with God. And then I will also be, I threw in a couple other topics to kind of finish out the teaching. So first, I'm going to read a quote. Um, so for this last class, um, as I said in the beginning of the class, this book in particular, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves, it is very readable, and it, is, um, it touches the heart in a way that is uh, dynamic. So if you want to continue to look on the topic of the Trinity and see it um, through the medium of a book, uh, I do recommend that. So I'm going to open up with one of the quotes from that book. Is God mathematical singularity? Um, and this is talking about Deuteronomy 6.4. So the quote begins, then what about Deuteronomy 6.4? I hear my many Muslim readers cry, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, one, not three. But the point of Deuteronomy 6.4 is not to teach that the Lord our God, the Lord is mathematical singularity. In the middle of Deuteronomy 6, that would be a bit out of the blue to say the least. Instead, Deuteronomy 6 is about God's people having the Lord as the one object of their affections. He is the only one worthy of them, and they are to love him alone with all their heart, soul, and strength. In fact, the word for one in Deuteronomy 6.4 really doesn't convey mathematical singularity at all well. The word is also used, for example, in Genesis 2.24, where Adam and Eve, two persons, are said to be one. And that is, again, a quote by Michael Reeves. So here we see him expounding on this reality that when the Bible says the Lord is one, that word used for one is also used for other things that do not remotely mean one in mathematical singularity. In fact, you could say when the Bible talks about the two becoming one and it uses that same Hebrew word, you could say that it points to something very different. So it actually points to the reality that God is one in being but multiple in person. So when, when we talk about the Trinity and relationship with God, we must ask the question, what is the foundation of this concept of relationships and relational connection? Where did it come from? Can a non-Trinitarian God be relational at the core of their being? So that is, you could say, the question of tonight. 
answering that question, can a non-Trinitarian God be fundamentally within the core of its being without any need for anything else be fundamentally full of love and relational? So the truth is that God is love because God is a trinity. And that is another quote by Michael Reeves. And th this was an observation that I have seen throughout every source that I have watched, listened to, or read concerning the Trinity. This is universal. All of them bring up this reality that the Trinity is, the, the reality of the Trinity creates the, the platform for the statement that God is love to even be real. In other words, without the Trinity, it's very difficult to say and prove that God, in fact, is love and, he, and, and that God is relational. So this is another quote. It says, take, for example, something the enormously influential Muslim theologian Abu Hamid al-Ghazali once wrote. This was written in somewhere between 1056 and 1111. He said, God does indeed love them, meaning people, but in reality, he does nothing uh, he loves nothing other than himself in the sense that he is the totality of being and there is nothing in being apart from him. So this is a famous Muslim theologian. Because Muslims believe that God is singular, that God is not a father, he has not a son, the, the Muslim theologians are coming to this conclusion that in theory God loves, but in reality he doesn't love anything other than himself because he's singular, because love is not, so I, I, could be, I could be smart without anyone around me, in theory, right? So there are various, I could be strong without anyone around me, but love is an attribute that fundamentally needs a giver and a recipient in order for you to prove or show that that's real. I can't say I love something and never and have that something not exist, or how you right? So when, when you're talking about uh, the Muslim faith, they basically they can't prove on any level that their God is full of love or is relational, because for eternity past there was no one to love. Before creation, before creation, be, before anything was ever created, if there's no recipient for that love then you can't say that that love existed. And this is, a, this is again, a fairly universal um, statement that I have heard spoken through various ways of communicating um, everywhere I've looked when looking into the Trinity. They all bring up this reality. So all of life seems to be built around the reality of relationship and connection with others outside of ourselves. Loneliness isn't just real, it's so real that lacking relational connection for too long does serious damage to our psyche. Yes? So we know this. When we, when we take prisoners and put them in solitary confinement, they will go even more mad. They will degrade in their ability to, to live and, and be because we are fundamentally built for relationship. So why is this? A tree or a rock can sit solitary in a field and never care.
but we undeniably are built for something more. So the question is, where did that come from? If we are so fundamentally built for relational connection, so built for this giving and taking of love outside of ourselves, so right, if, if, we, if, 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 if we see someone and it looks like everything that they do, they, they, they love themselves and that's it. They are so inward focused, they only, they're only focused on self, self, self. We would see that and we would say something's broken. Something is not complete. Something is, they're, they're, they're a narcissist. There's, there, there's something fundamentally, right? They, they, they lacked a, they have a father wound or they lacked connection with their parents when they were born or whatever the reason, we see that, 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 that there's something missing. So the reality is if we were created in the image of God and we were fundamentally at the very core of our being created for relationship, then it makes sense that we were created for relationship because God himself is a triune relational God. That there was relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit for eternity past. And that is where we are getting that imprint of God on the, sp on the, on the soul of man to say we are built for something more than ourselves. So we were created in the image of God, and that image wasn't just consisting of self-awareness and having a mind, will, and emotions, but it was very much consisting of not just relational capacity, but from our core, we were created for intimacy. So I can live with or without wealth. I can live with or without intellectual strength. I can live with or without possessions, but we fundamentally can't live without relationships. This is a reflection of the Trinity. God has never been solitarily alone as a singular person. The Son has always had the Father, the Father has always had the, the Son, and the Spirit has always been with and in the Father and the Son. So this is what we believe about the Trinity. So the cross is the ultimate sacrifice given for relationship with us. So the cross is the ultimate sacrifice of God and the whole purpose is for relationship. So when we see the cross, we should be seeing it in that Trinitarian light. So I'm going to read another quote. It says, The nature of the triune God makes all the difference in the world to understanding what went wrong when Adam and Eve fell. It means something happened deeper than rule-breaking and misbehavior. We perverted love and rejected him, the one who made us love and be loved by him. Astonishingly, it was the very rejection of God that then drew forth the extreme depths of his love. In his response to sin, we see deeper than ever into this very being of God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The God who is love definitively displays that love to the world by sending us his eternally beloved son to atone for our sin. And so through sending of the son, for our salvation, we see more clearly than ever how generous the self-giving and self-giving the love of God, the love of the triune God is. 
Without the cross, we could never have imagined the depth and seriousness of what it means to say God is love. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So this is all Trinitarian. The whole cross, as we said last week, the Father is the one who gave the Son. The Father sent the Son. And, and why did he send the Son? He didn't just send the Son to forgive us of our sins. He sent the Son to bring us back into relationship with himself. He wants to be known. And that's the power of the cross. It's motivated by love, and it's motivated by love that's external. It's not just that a singular God was trying to forgive us of our sins. Was that God, within the relationships between the Trinity, they wanted to share that perfection of love with us. So the Father sent his Son to make himself known, meaning not that he wanted to simply download some information about himself, but that the love the Father eternally had for the Son might be in those who believe in him, that we might enjoy the Son as the Father always has. Here then is the salvation no singular God or single person God could offer, even if they wanted to. The Father so delights in his eternal son, love for the Son that he desires to share it with all who will believe. Ultimately, the Father sent the Son because the Father so loved the Son and wanted to share that love and fellowship. His love for the world is the overflow of his almighty love for the Son. And scripture after scripture after scripture is consistent with, with this explanation. That it's the Father's love for the Son. It is that interrelational reality within God himself. That is the motivation of God coming to save us. He wants us to experience that relationship. So and as we're talking about the Trinity and relationship with God, we have to look at this relationship between the Father and his Son. So another quote, God the Father is not called Father because he copies earthly fathers. He's not some pumped up version of your dad. To transfer the failings of earthly fathers to him quite simply is a misstep. Instead, things are the other way around. It's that all human fathers are supposed to reflect him. Only where some do that well, others do a better job of reflecting the devil. Right, so when we're looking at the reality of God as Father, we don't look at our own father, the good or the bad, and project that onto God. God is better than the best father, and he is obviously better than the worst father. So the, the reality is that God created us to have the capacity to be fathers because he himself is a father. And then we are to learn from him and reflect his image by learning how to be fatherly the way he is father. So that is how we learn how to be like him. We look at who he is and we receive understanding. So 1 John 4, 7 through 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So we know that love is not just an attribute it's not just something that's tacked on to the being of God. It's not like an upgrade to your car. It's not, it's not something you're just adding to the, the fundamental of who God is. God himself, in his very core, the very nature of God is love. 
And again, we know that love is not just this internal attribute that can just zip around like an overexcited atom. We know that the fundamental reality of love is to pour out, is to release, is to have someone else be brought in to that fellowship. So this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son. The God who is love is the father who sends his son. To be the father then means to love, to give out life, to beget the son before anything else for all eternity. This God was loving, giving life to and delighting in his son. Thus love is not something the father has, merely one of his many moods. Rather, he is love. He could not not love. If he did not love, he would not be a father. Now, God could not be love if there was nobody to love. He could not be a father without a child. And yet, it is not as if God created so that he could love someone. He is love and, 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 not, and does not need to create in order to be who he is. So this is a fundamental reality of Christian belief. So if you ever study the, the doctrines of God, if you ever study a systematic theology book, you will come across this. God is self-sufficient, meaning he does not need anything outside of himself for himself to exist. So God did not need to create humans. If, God, if, if you say God is love, which requires an external pouring out into a recipient, and you say that God cannot do that within himself between the three persons of the Trinity, then you would have to say that he had to create in order to prove that he is love, that there would have to be something there for him to pour out into. In other words, God would not be self-sufficient. So if you're going to maintain the belief system that God is self-sufficient within himself, he has everything that he needs to be who he is. That creation was not, he, he did not have to create anything. God would be God with or without creation, right? Because he was God before creation. If God was fully God before creation, then he didn't need creation to be God. But if we also say that he, was, he is and was a father before creation, and if you say he is and he he is full of love and was full of love before creation then you have to come to grips with that reality that there, in order for him to be a father he needed to have a son so to speak otherwise you would it would be false to call him father and you wouldn't be able to say that he's full of love without someone to release that love to so that's 100% consistent with the Bible speaking about Jesus being, uh, you know, being in existence from before the foundation of the world, and, and we'll see it in John 17 when, when Jesus is talking about the glory that he had with the Father from before creation. So it, it, all of this is consistent, that Jesus existed with the Father, with the Holy Spirit from eternity past before creation. And this is why we can fundamentally have conviction and say God is love and he is a Father. There was not a point where God was not a father. There wasn't a point where God didn't have love. He's always been a God. He, God has always been love, and he's, and he's always been a father. So Jesus the Son says to the Father in John 17, 24, on page 3, says, You loved me 
before the creation of the world. The eternal Son, according to Colossians 1, is before all things. The one through whom all things were created, Colossians 1. And in Hebrews 1, calls Lord and God. Jesus is the one that's called Lord and God, who laid the foundation of the earth. It is he who is loved by the Father before creation of the world. The Father, then, is the Father of the eternal Son. He finds his very identity, his fatherhood, in loving and giving out his love and being to the Son. This is why it's imp important to note that the Son is the eternal Son. There was never a time when he didn't exist. If there was, then God is a completely different sort of being. If there was once a time when the Son didn't exist, then there was once a time when the Father wasn't a, yet a father. And if that is the case, then once upon a time, God was not loving, since all by himself he would have had nobody to love. And again, this isn't just the new idea of a singular author. This is the type of thing that I have seen and listened to expounded upon by theologian after theologian after theologian, doesn't matter the country of origin, it could be Russia, it could be, it, it could be Europe, it could be America, it could be, you know, all, all over the world, doesn't matter the, the, the century that that theologian existed in, they all are universally saying this reality, that we know God is love because of the preexistent Christ who existed as the eternal Son, and there was this love flowing from the Father to the Son. So the Father loves his Son in a very peculiar way, something we can see if we look at the baptism of Jesus. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Here the Father declares his love for his Son, his pleasure in him. He does so as the Spirit rests on Jesus. For the way the Father makes known his love is precisely through giving his Spirit. In Romans 5, 5, for instance, Paul writes of how God pours his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It is then through giving him the Spirit that the Father declares his love for the Son. It is all deeply personal. The Spirit stirs up the delight of the Father in the Son and the delight of the Son in the Father, inflaming their love and so binding them together in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And this is what we're invited into. We know this. The Holy Spirit is, right, it says the, the Father pours out, the, the, the Holy Spirit pours the love of the Father into our hearts. So the Holy Spirit is facilitating, it's awakening in us a love for God which is an invitation into the love that's already been flowing between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for eternity past. When God says that we are redeemed, again, we're not just forgiven. We are adopted into a family so that we can call God Father, so that we can be invited into that fellowship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And the Spirit is the one awakening and facilitating that love being poured into our hearts. That is how we know that we belong to God, right? The, the Bible says the Holy Spirit will bear witness in us that we are children of God. So the Holy Spirit is bearing witness in us. How? By pouring the love of God into our hearts, awakening us so that the predominant desire of our hearts is no longer ourself, 
It's no longer the flesh. It's no longer sin. We're awakened to be transformed into his image so that I say, I, yes, I want to know, I want to experience this perfection of fellowship, this perfection of love. I mean, how many of you had a parent that loved you perfectly? So we, we, in, in, in the natural realm, we can't even get our hand on it. We, we, we can't even grasp perfection of love, perfection of, uh, of, of the, 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 the pouring forth of, of grace and truth and light where there's, where there's never any shadow or shifting of turning. There's, there's never any, a, a, any uh, hiddenness of, of hiding you know, a, a wrong motive or a, overdoing discipline. Like None of that exists in God. So God's inviting us into that relationship that always existed. And the Holy Spirit is the one to, to seal us, to stir up the love of God in us, to pour forth the, lo the love of God in our hearts so that I can feel what Jesus felt. Jesus, for eternity past, has felt the love of God. And that's what we see here. The Father declaring over the Son before, before Jesus ever did a single miracle, before he ever preached a single sermon, the Father's declaring, I love Jesus. And that is what we now have the privilege of hearing if we belong to God. If we enter into that relationship with God, we can feel, we can experience that perfection of love. So John 17, I am just going to read through the whole of John 17. This is the prayer where Jesus is praying to the Father. And this is really one of the clearest pictures in all of Scripture where we see this intimate relational dialogue between the Father and the Son. So it says in uh, verse 1, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. See, even here we see there's no competition. Father, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Have you ever been in a relationship with zero competition where there's just perfection of honor going back and forth? That's what we see here. Verse 2, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. How many of us have been given all authority by somebody? All authority. Nothing held back. No question of whether or not it will be mishandled. So the Father's releasing all authority to the Son, giving him authority to give eternal life. So the perfection of trust between the Father and the Son is off the chain to say it in a modern way. Verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ to whom you have sent. This is eternal life. So it's inseparable. Eternal life is not just us knowing God the Father. It's inseparable. We, we, it, the eternal life is to know the Father and the Son. And verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And then verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world 
was. This is one of the clearest scriptures in the whole Bible talking about not just the pre-existence of Jesus, but talking about Jesus as co-equal with the Father. There was, again, perfection of glory passing between the Father and the Son before the world ever was, before anything was ever created. Jesus had glory with the Father. That is relational. That is the Father and the Son interacting between each other. And then verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of this world. They were yours and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them. They received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. I know in theory this is supposed to be true of marriage, but the reality is there are still things, parts of our life, parts of the house, that we're like, oh, that's mine. Don't touch the garage. Those are my tools. Don't touch the kitchen. Don't reorganize my kitchen. That's the wife's kitchen. But here between the father and the son, we don't see that. All things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I came to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. So this is Jesus declaring to the Father that this is the ultimate aim. The aim is not just the removal of negative consequences of sin. The aim is not just that we would be perfect, obedient slaves. The aim is that we may be one even as the Father and the Son are one. And that, that wouldn't make, that wouldn't, the reality of the Trinity magnifies the weight of this. Because the Father and the Son are not just singular, they're, 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 we know they're, they're one in, in essence, but we also know there's distinction in person. And this magnifies the weight of this because if, they, if there's distinction in person and we know that they're one, then we know that there's perfection of unity among things that actually have distinction, right? So if, if God is calling us into that unity, that we, would be, that we would be one like he is one, like I will never be you, you will never be me. But the Bible says that we can have the same level, we can aspire for, we can pray for, we can strive for that perfection of unity among each other, and then with God. And he's the reflection of it. It, it. it wouldn't make sense if God was mathematically one in person to say, have unity like I have unity. Uh, my, my recorder or a highlighter or whatever, like this is one, but there's no unity. So I, can't, I, 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 I couldn't call you to unity to be like, have unity like this. If this is singularly, singularly one, 
That wouldn't make sense. So it's, it, the, the weight of this is magnified when we see the distinction between father and son. The father and son are distinct, and yet, and yet they have that perfection of unity. So while I was with them, verse 12, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have jo- so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Again, he's wanting what is in him to be experienced by us. That is the whole point of redemption, that we are being taken into the fellowship so that we can taste of the joy and the unity and the love and the perfection that they experience within themselves. Verse 14, I have given them your word that the the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Has life ever been so hard that you want to skip out? God, take me out of the world. Take me home. You ever prayed that? I remember as a young child, I prayed that a few times. God, take me home. This is too hard. But here, the, the prayer of Jesus to the Father is don't take them out of the world, but preserve them through it. Keep them from the evil one. Verse 16. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Again, this is that focused statement. This is the end goal, that we are not just reconciled back to this ambiguous God, but we are reconciled and invited into the relationship that the Father already has with the Son and the Son already has with the Father. They're saying, let, let believers of every future generation be found in us so that they can know us and know this fellowship between the Father and the Son. And then verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I also have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect, perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire. That is perhaps one of the most profound statements in all of Scripture. This is Jesus saying, Father, I desire. This is Jesus as God declaring what he desires. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you have loved me before the foundation of the world. I mean, this this is the, it couldn't be more clear. This is relational. It's Trinitarian. It is, this is the, 
the core of our, of, this is the core of our faith. Jesus' desire that we would be caught up in the experience that the Father has with the Son. He wants us to know the love that was already poured out from the Father to the Son before the foundation of the world. Then in verse 25, O righteous Father, although this world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Again, he's saying the whole purpose, the whole purpose is that the love which is in me from the Father, this relational exchange of perfection of love, my whole desire is that this exchange, this perfection of love would be found in, in the ones that I have created and I have shed my blood to redeem. Uh, you're saying there's no competition between Jesus and mankind in the sense that the fullness of God's love is available to both? Because it's talking about glory and love and basically fellowship. And Jesus is like, bring them up. Not that we don't become gods, so to speak, but bring them up into the fullness of this fellowship. So much so that we know in the end we will receive resurrected bodies and one of the reasons why you'd say that we that we that we need resurrected bodies is because the fullness of god's glory and presence our physical frame can't handle our, our physical frame that is stained with with sin and imperfection we physically cannot handle the weight of glory that god wants to actually bring us into all throughout scripture when God shows up with his manifest glory, it's like men fall on their face like dead men. And it takes angels going over and touching them for them to be able to physically handle it. So, I mean, if, you, if, you're, if we're talking about the, the exchange of love and glory between the, the Trinity and, God and, and Jesus saying, do it again, God. This, this thing that we got, that we got that's... that's that's weighty and amazing that we've had since before creation, like let's create people and bring them into that and just blow their mind. But let's make it so weighty and so glorious that they have to actually wait for a resurrected body to feel the full force of it. And that's what we're waiting for. We're not just waiting for sickness to go away. We're not just waiting for us to be able to love and interact with family members that have passed away or past generations. We aren't just waiting to go have a conversation with David. King David. Like the, the thing that we are anticipating, the resurrection of the body, the marriage supper of the lamb, like it is all about the unveiling of God's perfection of love and glory that God actually wants us to experience. He actually wants us to feel it feel the weight of his glory. I mean, there's men on the earth that have, you know, given, written down testimonies of revivals and they've felt little glimpses of glory and, you know, seen things and felt they saw things and heard things, but none of that will ever compare to the weight of glory that God actually wants to release to us. And it's just as John said, that we are being invited into something that is on a whole other level. Jesus wants us created beings 
to experience the same manifest power and glory and fellowship and unity and love that he has had with the Father from eternity past. And that, my friends, is good news. That's what Christianity is about. We are persevering through hardship unto receiving glory that we literally can't imagine. The Bible says like, we, we, we can't even comprehend what God has in store for us. Our minds can't even handle it. We can't wrap our minds around it. And I know people try. You know, some people are like, oh, there'll be roller coasters in heaven or there'll be, you know, bass that are 10 times the size or whatever. But it's like, uh, that, that's just silly attempts of our imagination to try to dream up something cool. But the reality of what God has for us is beyond anything we could ever imagine. We can't just take a human experience and 100 exit. We can't just take a human experience and magnify it to the nth degree and say, well, heaven will be like that. Because the Bible says that his glory and his love and the fellowship is beyond what we can even imagine. All right. I, I am going to skip over. This is kind of a fun little section. It's called the perspicuity of Scripture. That is a theological term meaning the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. That is an interesting section, but I'm going to skip over it. So you can go read that on your own. But essentially, we believe that Scripture is clear enough to be understood, and we shouldn't have to bend all of our understanding and flip it upside down to understand it. So when we see, when we read something like John 17, and we see this interaction between persons, the Father and the Son, them talking about glory that, w that they had prior to creation, it makes sense for us to receive it as it's stated, for us to believe what it plainly says and not have to reinterpret it through some other lens to say that, well, it actually doesn't mean what it says. It actually means something different. So that's what that little section was about. So Jesus as the word of the Lord. So when we read our Bible, if we read it casually, if we read it devotionally, if we're just kind of reading chapter after chapter after chapter, naturally we will miss stuff. How many of you know that? There will be details that we literally won't see. Not because they're not clear, but because we're simply moving too fast to see them. Right? So I want to point out a few details in some Old Testament passages about this reality of something called the Word of the Lord um, and how our modern understanding, when I say Word of the Lord, what do you think? What, what comes to mind? The Bible. So what, 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 what else? When I say the Word of the Lord came to Joe Schmo, how would you interpret that? So the Holy Spirit speak, speaking. So if you look closely at the Old Testament, you'll see more than just the modern understanding of the word of the Lord came, and we think that means we got a message. In our hearts, we got a message, you know, that, that there's some form of God, God said. We say, God said, God told me. But if we look closely at the text, we see a little bit more than that. So Genesis 15, 1 through 6. 
after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. So the word of the Lord is coming to Abram, but he sees it. That's the first thing we can note. Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, since you have given me no offspring, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And then in verse 5, it says something curious. It says, he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you were able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So we have this word of the Lord coming. What is the word of the Lord? It's not 100% clear. But then we see this reality of being able to see it. It says, in a vision. So he sees it with his eyes. And then after this word is delivered, it says, he took him outside. So if the word of the Lord was just an immaterial message from God, then how did this immaterial message take on personal pronouns and take Abraham outside? So what is this word of the Lord? It says he took, he took him outside. It says the word of the Lord took him outside. So we are going to read a few more scriptures and try to see if we can gain some clarity. 1 Samuel 3, 19 through 21. Then Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall, fail. All Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, because the Lord revealed himself to Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So here we see the Lord himself saying, I appeared, I revealed myself, and it was by this thing called the word of the Lord. So again, the word of the Lord is not just this immaterial message because it's appearing and it's revealing. Like he, he, he saw it. He saw the word of the Lord. So here we have the word of the Lord. It's visual. It's revealing itself. And all of this is happening by the word of the Lord. So and then we look Jeremiah 1, 6 through 9. It says, Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. And the Lord said to me, do not say, I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. So here is Jeremiah. We have the Lord speaking and giving a message but then transitioning to do something specific that can be seen and felt. God stretched out his hand and touched Jeremiah's mouth. All right. So who is God? The Bible says God is spirit. You will not find a singular theology book, systematic theology, class on the doctrine of God. None of them will say that God the Father has a form because he doesn't. So there's something in the scripture called an anthropomorphism. Well, this is beyond scripture. It's not just a religious term. An anthropomorphism 
is when we attribute human traits to non-human entities. Attributing human traits to non-human entities. So the Bible does this regularly when talking about things like the arm of the Lord, the hand of God, speaking about God having nostrils. Um, it, it, when we say that, that God is a rock, right? God is our rock. How many of you know God is not a rock? God is not a physical rock. If, you, if, if, you, if we think that, then we need to have our understanding tweaked a little bit because that's not true. So God is not a physical rock. God the Father does not have a, does not have a hand. He doesn't have nostrils. It says God is spirit. So, but here in this specific example, we have, we don't just have the Bible saying God is like. We don't just have the Bible saying, you know, the hand of the Lord, you know, uh, came and helped in this battle. It's not a statement like that. Here we see an actual physical hand touching a mouth that could be seen and felt. So this was a tactile experience. Then how do we explain it? We also have verses that talk about no one has ever seen God. And that is a, that is a biblical statement that is found in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So if no one has seen God, and yet we have other verses in the Bible that says that people saw the Lord with their eyes, how do we reconcile this? The way that all of these puzzle pieces fit together is to believe in what is called a Christophany, meaning Jesus is manifesting himself, showing himself in the earth, sometimes in very tangible ways that can be seen with the naked eye and felt with the physical hand, and this is one of those. So Jesus himself is stretching out his hand and touching Jeremiah's mouth. This reconciles all of the various verses. So when, when we talk about scripture, we talk about, we, we, we don't just take isolated scriptures and interpret them by themselves. Everything in the Bible should be interpreted in light of the whole. Meaning it's called harmonizing the scriptures. So all of it should be in harmony. So that is what we see here. So and this will make it this will make way more sense um, in the next verse. So Revelation 19 verse 11. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. He who sat on it is called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called what? The Word of God. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on, a white, ho on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations he will rule with them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. So here we see the Word of God. That title, again, is not just this immaterial releasing of a message. This title, the Word of God, is attributed to the man, Christ Jesus, the God-man. So when we see in the Old Testament this word of the Lord coming and then interacting in ways that seem to 
not make a whole lot of sense if, if we're look only looking at it through the sense of the word of the Lord is some mystical experience. When it says the word of the Lord came to this prophet or that prophet, it's not, we're not, it's not just some mystical experience. They're like, ah, I woke up and I think God spoke to me. Oftentimes, they're physically interacting with the angel of the Lord or, or in, uh, in Exodus when, when God shows up in the burning bush. That's a very interesting passage which we don't have time to cover. But if you look at the, if you look at the way the words change, when it says the angel of the Lord, and then it will quickly switch and say God. And it's like, wait a second, is it the angel of the Lord or is it God? The answer is, it's both. Because the angel of the Lord is God. And the angel of the Lord, we again believe that that is Jesus manifesting himself in physical ways that can be seen and felt in the Old Testament. All right, so Revelation 5, 3 through 7. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne which the four living, with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing. So here we have the four living creatures and the elders over here. We have the throne over here. And then between the throne, between the throne and the elders is the lamb. So the lamb is between these. At the, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And verse 7, he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So this is undeniable distinction and differentiation of persons in this verse. We can't deny that on the one hand we have the Father sitting on the throne, we have the elders over here, we have the Lamb who is between the throne and the elders, and the Lamb is the one approaching the Father, taking the scroll from the Father. So again, this is a, another clear verse that is talking about the, the Jesus being distinct and separate from the Father as he is taking the scroll. So Revelation 5, 13 through 14. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. The elders fell down and worshipped. So the Father sitting on the throne and the Lamb are spoken of as separate and both of them as receiving honor and worship equally and together. This is why we say that God the Father and God the Son are co-equal and co-eternal both fully God and yet distinct from one another. Verses like this show that clearly. We have the one who's sitting on the throne and the lamb as separate beings or separate persons that are both receiving equal adoration, equal honor, equal glory. All right. So, amen. I ran out of time on the last class. 
There are a few extra things in the notes um, that are uh, good to read. The, the, the next section that says the word was with God. I want to make one point on this section. In all the study that I did, reading books cover to cover, reading articles, consuming an exorbitant amount of teachings and whatnot, um, this point, the word was with God, this singular point, I did not stumble on until after I had read and watched and listened to teaching after teaching after teaching after teaching on this subject. It, what this singular quote communicates is another thing that was not expounded on in anything else that I saw or read. What's my point? My point is that the journey of learning never stops. Even if we think we've studied a topic sufficiently, if we keep going beyond that point, we will continue to be washed in the truth and to learn things that we have never yet seen. And I just thought that was super fascinating. I had this playlist on YouTube with over 30 videos on the Trinity, and there was one that I hadn't listened to yet, and I was driving, and I was like, oh, I'm just gonna listen to that one. And it blew my mind. It was one of the best videos I had seen on the topic. Um, anyways, all that to say, we never stop. We never stop learning. We never stop washing ourselves in the truth. We're never gonna get to a point where it's like, I've exhausted the topic of God's love or the Trinity or any other biblical topic. We cannot exhaust it. Amen. So Lord, we thank you for this class. God, we pray that the reality of your identity as Father, Son, and Spirit, God, we pray that you would make that alive to us, Lord, that as we think about you, think about what you've done for us, God, we pray that it would come alive in our hearts, Lord, that you, was, that you would draw us into that fellowship, God. We pray that we would feel the love of the Father, that we would feel the security, God, of being loved in perfection by you. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would pour out the love of the Father into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week. Until next time, 